This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Anti-trans legislation often assumes that transgender kids will regret transitioning and want to detransition back to the gender that they were assigned at birth. But research shows that just isn't true. The Trans Youth Project at Princeton University published a study earlier this year that followed more than 300 trans kids over five years. Joining us to break down the study's findings and discuss how we research trans youth is TJ Billard, an assistant professor at Northwestern University's School of Communication. They're also the executive director of the Center for Applied Transgender Studies. Welcome to Reset, TJ. Hi, thanks for having me. What kind of research do you do at the Center for Applied Transgender Studies? So uh, we kind of do a lot. Um, We kind of describe what we do as scholarship on the social, cultural, and political conditions of transgender life. So basically, um, all of the various parts about trans life that uh, don't pertain to the practice of medicine itself, uh, that we do have medical experts among our fellows. Um, But our goal really is to do high-quality research on underexplored areas um, relevant to trans life and to make sure that our research is informing policymaking and public conversations about trans people in ways that improve the quality of life that trans people experience globally. Um, And so, you know, our experts range from medicine to neuroscience to anthropology to social work, um, but we're united by our focus on um, doing research that matters and making our findings um, influence uh, the world in positive ways. Well, let's look for a moment at a study released earlier this year from the Trans Youth Project showing how few trans kids actually de- or re-transition. But first, TJ, can you just give us a little background? What does it mean to detransition? Yeah, so detransition, sometimes called retransition, um, is basically the idea that someone comes out as trans and begins to take steps to socially and or medically transition, but then stops and returns to living as the gender that they were assumed to be at birth. Um, and when I say social transition, I'm referring to things like changing your clothing, changing your names, changing your pronouns, all of the various things that make up our genders in the social world, whereas medical transition refers to things like hormonal intervention, surgeries, et cetera. Um, and so somebody can transition socially without medically or both. Um, and so um, this idea of the transition is either that you just socially change back or that you um, medically um, need to kind of regress uh, in transition, but it's not um, very common uh, as, you know, this study by Christina Olson and colleagues shows, but it has been a disproportionate focus uh, among opponents of trans rights and people who oppose the provision of trans health care because they argue that um, trans youth shouldn't be allowed to transition, even if it's just socially, because they might detransition later. Mm-hmm. But we know that that's um, not actually a relevant concern. It's more of a kind of strategic talking point um, around this political issue more than it is really right. in any way a controversy among um, medical providers. And I want to be clear, TJ, you were not a part of this particular study, but you have followed it very closely. Um, so, yes. and, and we noticed that the study, when we were combing through it, it uses the word retransition, but detransitioning, retransitioning, they mean the same thing, it looks like. Yes. So there's a slight difference in that typically when when people say detransition, uh, they're typically tr- thinking um, in quite rigid terms of, say, somebody's assigned female at birth, 
They transition to be a trans man. They untransition to become a cisgender or non-transgender woman again. Whereas retransition tends to be a little bit more open about the idea that transition is not necessarily a linear process. So retransition would include, say, somebody who comes out as a trans woman, but then says, actually, I think my gender identity is a bit more complicated than that and begins to identify as non-binary. That would count as retransition, but not detransition, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So this whole idea of, of transgender kids are going to regret transitioning, they're all going to detransition back to the gender that they were assigned to at birth. This study shows that that isn't true. Is that new information? So, no, it is not new information. Uh, you know, as, as you say, uh, the, the study um, makes particular very well-evidenced points about the low rates of detransition. And ultimately, this is something that scholars who are experts in trans medicine and health already knew. It's things that practitioners who work with trans youth already knew. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of, you know, to create an analogy, uh, you know, physicists know a lot about physics, but it's really exciting when, you know, NASA's Webb telescope takes an image of something they know about gravity happening in practice, right? Like, it's not new information, but it's always exciting to see well-done, high-quality, clear and impactful demonstrations of what we know to be true. And that's, I think, why a lot of people were excited about this study, because although we knew it from, you know, the piecemeals of existing research and um, personal experiences that, that people have working with trans populations, this is just a large-scale, very well-done um, study that kind of shows it to a degree um, that we didn't necessarily have evidence for before. We'll take that a step further, TJ, and help us understand why these findings are so significant. So in a lot of ways, the, the findings aren't um, necessarily significant academically because we already knew it, right? So it's just, a, you know, it's another log on the, on the pile of, of, you know, slowly accumulating evidence of what we knew. Mm -hmm. But where this study is really um, potentially impactful is the way that it speaks to um, legislators and the ways that it could speak, <clears throat> excuse me, to medical practitioners. So uh, in the U.S. Uh, already, um, three states have passed laws prohibiting gender-affirming medical care for minors, and 21 other states are considering similar laws. So what this research um, could or should uh, show for legislators who would like to um, ban gender-affirming care is to show that like, there really is no fact basis for doing so. If you're going to do so, you're doing so on a basis of perhaps your moral beliefs or a political agenda, but it's not based on what's actually best for youth, and it's not based on medical knowledge. Um, and then for parents um, and for healthcare practitioners who maybe are pediatricians who don't deal with trans kids all the time, they're not experts in trans things, but they're, they need to provide care to a youth who comes into their clinic, this provides them um, evidence that they don't need to worry that they're doing the wrong thing, and they don't need to worry that um, they need to fear the long-term consequences of whether or not they allow uh, these youth to receive the care that they need. And so that's really where this research is going to you know, have its major and long-term impact. This is Reset. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with T.J. Billard from the Center for Applied Transgender Studies about research that shows transgender kids who socially transition 
are very unlikely to detransition over five years. This confirms what researchers and medical professionals have seen anecdotally for years. TJ, the, the study that we talked about, uh, it's looked at trans kids who socially transitioned, as, as you explained earlier. What does this look like, though, for kids and adolescents who do seek medical intervention? Yeah, so medical intervention, um, by which I, I, I'm mostly referring specifically to hormone replacement therapy, okay. um, that comes at a time that we would kind of consider post-puberty. Um, puberty blockers are a, a kind of temporary intervention and one that's given to cisgender kids, for example, who begin puberty that a physician deems to be too early, say at seven, and so it allows them to have the youth take that medication until the physician determines they're an appropriate age, they can take them off, puberty will happen. So puberty blocker is temporary uh, in that way. And, and um, hormone, replacement, hormone therapy? replacement therapy would come in lieu of puberty at a later date. Um, uh, typically, you know, it would be considered very early in current practice even to be at 14, much less, you know, sometime after. So, um, it was kind of a little bit beyond the scope of this study because um, they started with youth who were between the ages of 3 and 12. But over that five-year time period, there were some youth who were age-appropriate to start hormone replacement therapy. There were 98 of them uh, who became age-appropriate by the end. And all but one of them did then go on uh, to receive gender-affirming hormone replacement. And so what this really shows is that um, there is consistency in youth um, identities and in youth desires for medical care. And so um, when we allow them the opportunity to receive the various forms of care that they need in their youth, when they get to that post-pubescent age, they are still consistent and we are prepared to provide them the medical care that they need, um, which if we denied them um, care earlier, uh, we denied them affirmation and perhaps denied them um, things like puberty blockers, it would significantly affect their ability um, to uh, receive with ease um, gender-affirming hormone replacement later um, at, at when they are age-appropriate. Mm -hmm. and, and at the Center for Applied Transgender Studies, TJ, you mentioned you're, you're working with, with fellows. Have they, some of them, detransitioned? So, no. Okay. Uh, all of our fellows at the Center um, are trans, um, and... Um, and do those uh, discussions come up at all? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so the idea of, of, of detransition and retransition has definitely come up, and, and student, uh, uh, sorry, uh, fellows in our center um, have it in various ways at various times studied um, detransition, uh, largely because the focus on, on detransitioners quote, unquote, um, has, has typically been to either um, view them as, as um, uh, kind of an ex uh, evidence that trans identity is temporary and... Um, right, like this is a phase. Right, exactly, yeah. that it's I, a I'm phase. I'm trying to get a sense um, of how, how this is actually talked about in real life, you know, or is this just kind of more at the policy level, the political level, as you, you mentioned earlier? Right. So a lot of our fellows have looked at, well, who is it that does detransition and, and why do they do it? So in adulthood, frequently detransition is rooted in things like um, unaccepting family environments, unaccepting faith communities, uh, experiences of discrimination in housing and employment, where it's easier 
for your life. If you just detransition, pretend to be cis so that you can gain access to all of the other things that you need in life. And so a lot of times detransition is motivated by external factors rather than internal ones. Mm -hmm. um, but our fellows who have looked at this have also then looked at, well, what forms of support can we provide for people who do detransition or retransition? Um, instead of viewing detransition um, as something that is bad or to be feared because of what it says about trans identity, how can we instead um, you know, work in alliance with people who detransition to provide them everything that they need to do that successfully? safely um, and without fear yeah. of, um, of judgment or, or, or of consequence. And there are examples out there of detransitioning people who are living healthy and happy lives, right? This doesn't Absolutely. necessarily mean it's something that's going to ruin their life, right? Absolutely. How is this study here by the, um, uh, the Trans Youth Project, how is this different from other research that we see? So I, it, I don't know that it's necessarily different so much as it represents um, kind of current trends in um, research on trans youth. Um, if we look kind of historically at the way that trans youth have been studied by researchers, um, there's kind of like three phases, the, the early phase being one marked very much by pathologization, um, viewing trans youth as, um, as kind of defective or as having some form of ailment to be treated, to be regarded, to be fixed. Then a kind of second phase of fascination where trans youth were kind of seen as this, um, this kind of testing ground for people to explore their ideas about gender and about identity development, about medical intervention, et cetera. And we're now kind of coming, thankfully, into um, this third phase of, of affirmation where the focus is less on the morals of the scholar or the um, intellectual fascinations of the scholar and instead focusing on the needs of youth and um, how can we affirm the identities that youth do hold and provide them uh, with the best forms of care that we know from evidence to be what they need. And so it's meant doing research that's oriented towards what are youth's objectives and how do we meet them healthily mm -hmm. and sustainably. Um, and so this study, I think, um, is very much representative of this um, more recent wave of um, academic scholarship on trans identity um, and is kind of exemplary of the way that we can do research on issues that matter uh, to trans youth and to do ways uh, to do them in ways that are affirming of their identities um, and not necessarily prescriptive of how we believe their identity development should unfold. And how would you say this research plays into discussions that we've all heard that fuel anti-trans legislation? I mean, you know, the research obviously shows that anti-trans rhetoric is not based in fact, um, but we also, you know, very much kind of knew that, right? Um, we can hope that this research will have an impact on policymaking and on individuals' perspectives because people and policymakers do cite the, some of the bad, uh, kind of poorly regarded research that's out there. Um, and so we can hope that maybe this can replace uh, the information they base their opinions and legislations on. Um, but we can't be certain that it will, uh, in large part because a lot of times people um, 
intentionally cling on to things that are disreputed uh, because it confirms uh, what they already believe or it maybe states some of their anxieties that they have over, um, over change that confuses them or scares them. So, you know, as I said earlier, three states in the U.S. have already passed laws prohibiting gender-affirming care for minors. 21 others are considering similar laws. We can hope that this research will um, lead to or help people fight for the reversal of those laws or the prevention of the passing of those laws. Um, But what it kind of more broadly, I think, speaks to is the responsibility that researchers have um, in a political climate that the one like the one we have to use our knowledge and the resources that are afforded to us by our scholarship to contribute to public life, to improve the circumstances of the people and the institutions that we study, and to use our knowledge to inform public conversation in ways that we don't need to worry about whether or not fear-mongering will prevail in the policymaking process. We can be certain instead that, you know, empirically grounded evidence-based um, work will mm-hmm. inform the ways that we make policy that shape, you know, the life chances that people are afforded. Um, and so, you know, we can be hopeful that this research will have that impact. We, of course, cannot be certain. Right. Uh, there will be people who, who don't want to hear it and who will plug their ears, um, you know, but we at the center uh, and I think scholars of, of trans health more generally are working to make sure that we don't simply let bad policy that will harm trans people go unchallenged yeah. and that we use our research to do something about it. T.J. Billard is an associate professor at Northwestern University's School of Communication and the executive director of the Center for Applied Transgender Studies. Thank you for your time, T.J. Thank you so much for having me. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.